up, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to Adult Education. Today, I'm so excited to share a conversation that I had with another podcast host. We're talking music with Ray Harkins. If you're new to my show, thank you so much for taking some time to check it out. I would love it if you would subscribe. That way you'll be able to follow along with our journey. And it would also be fantastic if you'd take a minute to leave a rating and review. Now, if you've been following Adult Education and our previous title of Be More Well, Thank you so much for sticking with me. I so appreciate you taking time out of your day, out of your life to hang out for these conversations. If you're anything like me, then you listen to podcasts and often have follow-up conversations or comments for the host or guest. They say something and you're in the car like, wait, 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 what'd you mean by that? I need more. Uh, today's conversation is giving me the opportunity to ask some of those questions. I reached out to Ray Harkins. He's the singer for hardcore band Taken, but also the host of the popular podcast 100 Words or Less. He's just celebrated his ninth year hosting this podcast. It's really amazing what he's done. Yes, kids, podcasts have been around for a lot longer than just the last year. Uh, some of the topics we dive into today include aging and the hardcore scene, resurgence of popularity for some older bands thanks to services like Spotify, and when we started to notice the monetization of the hardcore and heavy music scenes. Also, just for context, at the beginning of this conversation here, you're going to hear us rambling about podcasting equipment a little bit. That started because Ray commented on my microphone that I was using during our Zoom call, and we just kind of nerded out for a couple of minutes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ray Harkins. Oh, what's up, radio professional friend? <laughs> of, of course, you got the arm, you got everything going on. Yeah. It's, that's it's the way if I, I joke around with people where it's like when I show up with my headphones and like, you know, whatever, little USB pro mic, people are like, oh, my gosh, dude, like just your average meeting. People are like, oh, my gosh, you're so professional. It's like, dude, <laughs> like, no, but I appreciate it. And then I joke around where I'm like, Oh, you think I'm going to show up to a, uh, you know, a, a, a gunfight with a knife. It's like, no, you got to show up looking pro or whatever. For sure. I mean, look, nine years into this, uh, podcasting world for you, you better have something, right? <laughs> yeah. It'd be, it would be funny if I was just like recording on my iPhone. I'm just right. like, Hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a couple recently and, and, you know, everybody's kind of shifted to doing zoom calls. There's not as many in-person interviews as there used to be. Uh, I'm sure that'll yep. change again, but like, I've heard some recently where the quality is just so bad. And like the content is great. The things they're talking about are fantastic. But to me, and maybe it's because I listen to it with like a radio ear a little bit too, but I'm listening to it. I'm like, I, this is unlistenable to me. I cannot listen for 45 minutes of two people on a terrible connection. No, this, especially too, there is literally no excuse at this point to like have like, not, not just like piss poor audio, but just like, like you really you, you, talking into a tin can. That's what it sounds like. Right. It's like, come on, dude, just, just bail on that. I mean, I only bought a lot of this stuff because I was broadcasting from home and I mean, I was doing a, right. a live it's morning a show from home for all, over a year. Like I needed to have something and it's yeah. not that expensive. Realistically. I, I know everybody has different financial situations, but realistically yeah. it's not that expensive. If you want to do this and make, you know, make something of it, it's not that expensive to invest in. No, not at all. Yeah. Just to be able to, it, it, you know, for less than, you know, 800 bucks, you could have a substantial rig that yeah. will make you sound just top shelf. But yeah, some people just are, are terrified. They're like, Oh my gosh, do I need to buy like a thousand dollar mic. It's like, I mean, you can, but you yeah. don't have to. You don't have, I mean, I think this was like 200 bucks. So it's not even, and that is even like higher end than what you necessarily need, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. For sure. Well, Ray, I'm glad you could make some time for me. Um, I, I want to say oh, I love yes. I love that the podcast, uh, it, it's 100 words or less. You always say 100 words. Is it 100 words or less? Is that the full name? 
That is the full name of the show. Yes. Okay. Nine years in, which I'm I'm jealous that you had that you had the the thought to do that because I think back like 10, 12 years ago when I was doing internet radio for a, a station and I was interviewing all these bands and I was like, what the hell am I gonna do? with all these interviews. Like I just, I have so many that never even aired because I just didn't know what to do with them. And now I'm sitting here kicking myself for not knowing what a podcast was 10 years ago, because I totally could have had so much great stuff. Yeah, no, it's very, and it's funny too, because the, uh, obviously the straight line that connects radio and podcasting. I mean, like it's, that is where it started, obviously. And like my whole journey into podcasting started because I liked radio a lot. And so that idea of being able, like, I remember the the, the main dude who sort of influenced me into like picking up a microphone and doing a podcast. I use that in air quotes. It was like Leo Laporte. And he was trying, I just, I love it because he still occasionally talks about it where he was trying to brand it as a netcast mm. <laughs> because it was like, oh, iPod, like you see Apple has the dominant thing. So like, we can't have this. And I just remember him talking about this thing called the podcast. And I was like, what is that? But he's like, oh, it's a netcast actually. <laughs> like that didn't, that didn't work very well, but uh, I really liked the, the ability to, uh, you know, just as you have you know known just like you know plugging and playing and kind of figuring out obviously as you're going along but yeah it's uh it, it is funny to look back and be like oh wow I guess I've been doing this quote-unquote forever even though it's like you know <laughs> some people are just like oh podcast the past year it's like yeah that is a thing guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time yeah <laughs> I have friends that, you know, that say to me like, oh, well, how much money are you making off it? I'm like, zero dollars. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> probably losing money because I'm taking time out of my day to do this. But I, I I love that it gives me a different outlet of creativity and gives me a chance to to talk to folks like you who maybe I wouldn't necessarily talk to on the air for, you know, a normal. I mean, I work for a country radio station, but I grew up in the hardcore scene. So, like, I, I spread very, you know, all over the place with music. But uh, I, I never would have had this opportunity otherwise. So I just think it's so cool to have these chances to have different types of conversations and and really dive deep with people. 100%. It's, I think it really, it's even special for, you know, people who have been friends for 20 plus years and just have, have that idea of being able to know, because it's, as you well know, being an adult and making friends is weird because you're just like, I I, do I have to know about your first 20 years of existence or like, where do I come in here? Do we just like pick up from here and then just kind of go forward? Um, but that's why it's so cool to be able to find out about, you know, a, a little about a person's history on a podcast and then understand like, oh yeah, like, wow, they kind of found out about this thing this way. And like our paths are somewhat similar. And yeah, there's very rare occasions where you can actually do that, even with friends who you're like, oh, I've known forever, but it's just like, how, how are you as a child? <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't, that's a weird, why are you asking me that question right now? <laughs> I will say one thing that I really admire about what you do with your podcast is, you know, obviously you've been in the hardcore scene for many years, so you know a lot of the people that you interview and you do a really great job at still having a good conversation with someone that you know, so the listener doesn't feel left out of the inside jokes and not everybody can do that. Like even, you know, sometimes I watch Fallon or something and he's talking to someone he's known for years and, and I'm lost. I have no idea what those two people are talking about because they're so, they're so inside. All the jokes are so personal to them, but I, I really admire the way that you talk to people and still welcome the listener in with this conversation. Thank you. I really try to focus on the fact that even if I am 
you know, whatever, a stand for this person, a stand for their band, just for anybody who can kind of walk in and understand more of obviously who this person is and where it's not just like, like you said, just a bunch of inside jokes and being able to put certain things in context. Like that's, to me, that's the most important thing of what podcasts can do if that is the aim of the podcast and if that is the aim of what a person is trying to articulate is just placing these person placing these people at a certain time and a place and understanding like how they got from kind of point a to point b and make it as you know as cheesy as it sounds making it as inclusive as possible because i do think that there is especially when you're talking about art like people clearly have opinions about art like people like bands or they hate bands. <laughs> and like, it, hopefully that's the reaction you inspire because if you are a band that just kind of sits there in the middle, like that's the worst place to be. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like I'd rather you hate the thing than just be indifferent about it. And I think what is the most complimentary thing that I, I love getting feedback from is be, people being like, I, I don't like this band at all. I listened to this interview and now I like the person. I still hate their band, <laughs> but like I now have at least some connective tissue to where I'm maybe not going to be as quick to judge their new record because I understand a little bit of where they're coming from. Because like I, I, anecdotal funny story where just like I was looking at Instagram today, like most normal humans do, <laughs> and was um, there's this because I'm obsessed with band merch. There's this uh, like, you know, random Instagram account where it's like, you know, 90s hardcore and emo shirts or whatever. And this person was posting about uh, Steve Aoki, the world famous DJ yeah. that obviously has, you know, a mainstream appeal, but comes from the punk and hardcore scene like you and I. And he was wearing like this, you know, crazy Gorilla Biscuit shirt that was like just <laughs> ugly as hell. Like, I mean, no shots against what Gorilla Biscuits is making right now merch wise, but uh, not for me. But it's for Steve Aoki and that's cool. But people, this, this guy, whoever's running this account was like defending Steve Aoki in like comments. And he was posting screenshots on his Instagram. And it was one of those things where I was like, I was like for everybody. And he was defending Steve Aoki because people were calling him like a poser or right. whatever. And I just found it so interesting where it's like, Oh, like anybody that does, again, any monicum of research understand that this, like, this is where Steve Aoki kind of comes from. And for people calling him for a poser for wearing a Gorilla Biscuit shirt, it's like, dude, calm down. But anyways, that's just the the context that I really like to be able to pull out of people that like, you can still hate their art, but you can understand why they are creating the art that they're creating. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it's like that connective tissue that will at least make you understand where they're coming from. And, and I totally agree with you. And I think that's such a cool aspect of it because I've listened to a lot of uh, podcasts, whether it's yours or other people's talking to artists I don't know a lot about. And I've I found that I've really turned the corner with them. And I'm like, I, I need to learn more. I want to listen to more of this music and understand. But I've also found when I listen to conversations with people that I do know that I walk away from some going, what an asshole. <laughs> like, like I don't totally. I, like I, it makes me want to throw away the T-shirt or something like I'm just like, <laughs> this guy is such a dick that I don't want to be a part of this conversation anymore. <laughs> so, no, it's like, I mean, the saying, you know, don't meet your heroes. Right. Like, some of that totally exists with it, especially certain people of a certain age where it's like there are uh, if, once you get, you know, past middle age or whatever, a lot of people get calcified and like they are who they are. And I know we all are in some capacity. That's like the hardwired DNA, but there are definitely people where you're just like, yeah, maybe I'm just, you know, 
there's the art and there's the artist. I just like the art, yeah. you know, as long as they're obviously not like, you know, super racist or homophobic. Oh, right. Then <laughs> there's, like, well, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that whole thing where it's like, yeah, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater unless like the baby and the bathwater are like absolutely tainted and horrible people. Right. Then you just throw it all out. And just get rid of it. It's gone. It's gone. Uh, well, Ray, I, I, there's a lot of things I want to talk about. And what I, what I really want to dive into here, um, well, before I do that, I, I just want to say really quick, and I hope I don't make it too weird, but your record collection sexually arouses me. Like it's, when you show, I can see it in the background. When you show pictures of that, and when you were doing like, I was like, "What is happening? How does this man?" And I, I and I get so jealous mostly because when I was growing up, I think we're probably pretty close in age, but in the late '90s when I was getting into like the Boston hardcore scene, that's kind of where I grew up. I didn't have a record player. I didn't have any money, so I didn't buy a lot of the records, and I didn't start thinking about it till way down the line. And I think, God damn, I missed so many incredible vinyl records that will never be repressed, that will never be released again. That, thankfully, I got my hands on a few, but I look at your collection, and I'm just like, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> well, I I am glad it sexually arouses you because it definitely <laughs> it. I look at it, and it does make me. It makes like just looking at any collection in general it's always like oh wow like that's cool you, you obviously like that like if it's legos or whatever it's just that that feeling of warmth that you get when a person obviously cares about the thing and then like cares enough about it to you know display it or whatever uh but yeah, I, I mean it definitely is a labor of love and it's the worst <laughs> thing ever to move like there's nothing <laughs> convenient about it even if you have two boxes it's like, yeah. oh my gosh. But like, I, fortunately the house that I'm living in, I've been here for about two, two and a half years. And that was, and I haven't moved a ton, but ever the last move I did, I did not like no one else touched the records. And it wasn't because I didn't trust them. And like, honestly, I didn't have like a moving company or anything, but it was very much like, listen, this is my burden to bear. <laughs> I, I don't want to bother anybody else with this. So I'm just going to go ahead and move this all myself. But like, you know, when you get whatever 40 boxes in and you're just like, this is, this is an unwise decision. And like, if I lived somewhere else besides like, you know, the suburbs, like if I lived in New York city, it's like, give me, there's no way you could do right. this. Like, so yeah. you're not carrying I, all that I, up a five floor walk up. <laughs> Like, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, it would really, you do get to a point where it's like, okay, is like, is this the right decision? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think at those points, if it was in like my early twenties and being like, do I need all these records? And it's like, yeah, maybe not. But yeah, fortunately I've been able to keep them for as long as I have. <laughs> I've got to hide all mine now. Cause my, my daughter just turned nine months old and she has started to realize she likes them. Now she's only been able to grab the seven inches off of the shelf. Um, yeah. which also sucks because some of those are like my more prized ones. Like she pulled an overcast one off, uh, the other day and I was like, don't break the overcast seven inch. And there was a, a Jesuit one that I was like, Oh my gosh, these, these are never going to be replaced, please. Right. So I've got to get a box at work tomorrow and just pack them all up and take them away. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's just like this. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe I'll, uh, I'll keep this at a, a higher place. Yes. Yeah. You got to hide it. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. for sure. Um, so I, I don't know if you're like me, but when I listen to podcasts, a lot of times, especially when it's in a conversation with someone, not like a, you know, a murder mystery podcast, I listen to the conversation and I think I've got, a, I've got a comment about that. Like, I want to ask a question. I have a follow-up. So that's really why I reached out to you because there have been a few questions that have popped into my head that I think to me are very interesting conversations that can come off of some of your recent interviews. So I'd love to dive into some of that if you don't mind. 
I don't mind at all. That I, I like the approach, my friend. Well, since we are, we're mentioning Overcast, let's start with Brian Fair. Uh, so yes. one thing that he was talking about that I really liked, and, and I, I, I don't know if you see it quite the same now, and I'm not trying to play this like old is better than new. It's just interesting how time has changed, is he was talking about how when they would go on tour as Overcast or even Shadows Fall, they would play with all these random artists that were all you know in the heavy music scene, but they would not have been considered the same type of music. And I don't know if you see that quite as much now. Like when you go to a hardcore show now, you're going to a hardcore show. But I remember specifically growing up going to a show that was Piebald, Caven, Converge, and Bane. Like, and all four of them brought something very different to the table. And I don't think any of them would be considered to be in the same genre, if you will. But that was what happened. Like you just all played shows together. I, and I, honestly, I, I definitely reflect on that as far as not not like the, you know, nostalgic sort of old man on the porch, like you're, you're talking about, like, oh, things were so much better back right. then. It, it, I, I look at it. I mean, the reason that existed back then in the you know mid to late 90s and even early 2000s is because this scene overall was not a commodity, you know, like we we were playing with so many different bands because there was like there wasn't that many bands and there wasn't that like sort of collective uh, of like, okay, if I want to play a, in a youth crew, old school, hardcore band, there's seven other bands that I can play with on like a weekly basis. There was maybe two, maybe three. And so then we would kind of pull together where it's like, yeah, I got some metalcore stuff. And yeah, of course we have the local indie rocker emo band. And I, I think because they all have come from the same branch or the same trunk of the tree of just like the, you know, general independent music scene, I think that's why it obviously existed. And then a lot of the times too, because these tours that were booked around that time were very hand to mouth and just being like, oh, well, you know, yeah, like, yes, Overcast, Shilute and Disembodied are touring together, but we're three bands. And we're relying on everybody else yeah. to just throw the other bands into play. And so there was probably, not probably, there was for sure was a lot of that just being like, oh yeah, here's the you know local cool emo band, the local cool hardcore band or whatever. So I do think that what, I mean, I personally noticed it in the early 2000s where the package tours started to exist where that was, you know, homogenous where it's like, oh yes, the pop punk tour, the hardcore tour or whatever. Right. Vagrant America and, or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Where it's and and I think that there was probably the reason that that was so interesting. Like even though like you know like using the Vagrant tour where it's like yeah you had a band like the Anniversary and a band like the Get Up Kids where people were just like they're exactly the same except one has got keyboards. <laughs> it's like <laughs> little different variations. Um, but then once bands and managers and record labels and agents were able to kind of commoditize this and be like, like no shots against rise records, but it was like in the early two thousands when they had like the devil wears Prada and like Catherine and like all these random bands. And they were able to like build off of one another to where it's like, Hey, the devil wears Prada is going to take three bands that sound almost exactly the same as them and attack attack and whatever else. Yeah. And they're going to put this out and th those bands are all going to grow hopefully incrementally based off of the headliner, which obviously is always kind of supposed to happen. But I think that once people realize that this was like bigger than the 400 cap venues that everybody was playing prior to that and being like, wait, we can actually sell out a house of blues. Like, Oh, okay. I guess we can do this. That's when it became a business and it was easier for people who had little or 
maybe just like tangential connections to that scene were able to be like, oh, this this is something that is worth my time from a sort of career professional perspective. And so, you know, good or bad, that's just basically the way it started to go. And now I think that once that habit started to be created, then everybody just started to be like, well, this is the way that, you know, that tours can be successful because this is kind of what people, what what the the kid quote unquote wants. It's funny that you you mentioned House of Blues and how, you know, things became a business because that is a story that I have. And it was the moment that I realized that things in the hardcore world had changed. I was home for a break. I think it was either winter of 99 or winter of 2000, like somewhere in that period. I was home for break from school in Boston and I heard Snapcase was playing the House of Blues. And I had never seen Snapcase. And I was like, oh my God, let's go down there and go to the show. We walk up at the door and I've got, you know, my... 10 bucks in my hand or whatever, ready to give the guy some cash. And he's like, yeah, it's sold out. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean sold out? What is that? And I've never been to a sold out show before. And he's like, yeah, totally. they sold out like two weeks ago. And I was like, sold out two weeks. When did people buy tickets ahead of time? I always paid at the door. What are you talking about? <laughs> Dude, that was, so, I, I mean, I'm glad you articulated that. Cause that was such a real thing where it was the shift of, you know, buying pre-sale tickets and understanding that it's like what do you like what this can sell out like i didn't think that that was i mean i I, even especially too and honestly i think a lot of it had to do with the you know professional venues and like actually caring about capacity (laughs) (laughs) not somebody's basement (laughs) totally but it's like i remember like in the early 2000s and honestly i attribute a lot of this to like the whole you know i think it was like great white or whatever the you know oh yeah the when that whole thing, like, you know, 13 people died in a venue and that sort of stuff. Like once that became part and parcel of most venues, regardless of size, understanding that like, Oh yeah. Like maybe packing 600 people in a 200 person place is not that safe. But I distinctly remember like even a professional place like chain reaction where it's like in the early two thousands, I mean, everybody was getting away with, you know, quote unquote murder of just like, Oh, dude, like I so distinctly remember a show that my band Taken played. It was like us, Throwdown, Bleeding Through, just like, you know, a total local show. But at that time, all of our bands were clicking. And it was like, I don't know, 650 kids in Chain Reaction. And capacity there is like 220 at the most. Oh, is it, it really? Was like, oh my gosh. It was, I mean, you could not even like open <laughs> the door. But uh, it, it was that, I mean, that show was sold out. But it, the only like, the only reason it was sold out is because people stopped showing up because right. <laughs> they were like, Oh, we can't fit any more people in here. Like literally. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're very right. Like once that shift, that mental shift started to happen, that's when also it was like, Oh, okay. Like this is much bigger than, you know, just my 40 friends that go to shows on a regular basis. The one thing that does suck as I look back on that time though, about just paying at the door and going in is I'm, I've been thinking about this since we started talking about doing a conversation. I I know I've seen your band, but I couldn't tell you where or when. And I have no ticket stub to say, like, I saw Taken, <laughs> yeah. you know, because and, and, there were so many shows that you either paid at the door and just got a stamp on your hand or an X or whatever, or you maybe bought a ticket ahead of time and they gave you like a little red admit one, you know, ticket just to say, hey, you paid for something. I, I have no, there's so many bands that I saw that I will never remember. I've forgotten more than I've actually like remembered I've seen. Oh. It's, it's Absolutely. wild. Or the, the only way that you might be able to remember it is if you see an old flyer. Yes. And then you're like, oh, I did go to that show. But like, other than that, there's no, like you said, actual proof of, you know, you're, you're attending the thing because it was, it, it resides in your memory or in the t-shirt that you bought or the seven inch you bought. Cause other than that, nothing, nothing there, man. Yep. I tried to buy a t-shirt, at least one shirt from every show, but you know, broke college kid at some point, I kind of 
fell off of that. But uh, there was yeah. something like, you know, one of the shows that I think I regret the most not really remembering that much is I was at the Kid Dynamite final concert and before they reunited and did some things, but like it was the final show. And at the time I didn't even know a lot about kid dynamite, but I was living in Philadelphia, going to school. And all my friends were like, we're going to go to this show. You should get a ticket, got a ticket. I did get a t-shirt, but I, I still, I think back and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember that concert. Like it's crazy because that was such an epic show in that era and such a band that people love, you know, incredibly that I wish I remembered it. Like I wish that I could tell you exactly what went down that night. Right. Like here's, here's the songs, here's the set list or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is hard when you like, there are some shows and I'm sure you've experienced this where it's like, it feels like you need to be there because it's just like, I don't even necessarily like love this band or worship that their entire catalog, but you're like, I know this is going to be a special event or whatever. And so that's probably what you were feeling like. And you were like, I don't necessarily I like Kid Dynamite. I'm not, am I a hardcore devotee like everybody up front is? Like, probably not, but it's still important. So, I mean, yeah, you wish you had more memories about it, but it's just like you knew that you needed to be there because all your friends were there. And it's like, this is like, dude, we're at the, you know, we're at the church basement. Of course I got to like see the show or whatever. Yeah. That's where I was too, the first Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. That's where the uh, spectacular venue. Oh my gosh. I lost so much weight there just from sweating. So it's so brutal. I just, I also really loved, obviously, like the floors there, which was just like you know, like like kid panel, like you know, like I, I, or actually, it was the stage. The stage had like the the soft kid paneling of like whatever, you know. But yeah, I just love, I love that place. And still, I mean, it's cool that they're still able to do shows because I know for many years it was like shut down or whatever. But yeah, yeah, it's cool. They went back a few years back. Boy sets fire did a like I forget ten or twenty year anniversary of an album and I dragged my wife up there and she hated every second of it, but, uh, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Dude, so that's all that is. Yeah. There's nothing. I mean, it's, it's good that you're married from that perspective. Cause there's a, I uh, for sure remember taking, I was dating a girl in high school and she was super into ska. I was super into hardcore and punk. And like, we, you know, we tolerated each other's music, which was fine. But I, you know, I went to a ton of shows with her and she went to a ton of shows with me. But I, I distinctly remember taking her to one show at the Showcase Theater in Corona where it was um, it was uh, Bloodlet and Vision of Disorder. And it's like, just like, she wanted to off herself. Like, it was just so, like, it is the most torturous thing for a person to sit through. Like, Bloodlet is a tough band for yeah. people to get into. And Vision of Disorder is not exactly easy listening either. And so I just remember her, like, giving me looks at certain times being like, what are we still doing here? Right. And like, because I've got punished by so many horns. So you're going to have to, you have to stick around for this. Okay. <laughs> Before I uh, switch topics here, cause this actually ties sure. into it. Uh, I actually have tickets and I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that COVID does not get out of control. Cause I really want to go to this show, but I've got a, you know, an infant daughter that I have to think about too. I don't want to bring anything home to her, but of I have course. tickets to the California takeover uh, show in Philadelphia, Strife, Earth Crisis. I think Bleeding Through is on it too, but uh, Snapcase. And I, I've never seen Strife or Earth Crisis ever. Like they just, they just didn't come through at a time when I was able to go. And I, I was just like, I need to do this. Like that was the first, that was the first CD that really opened my eyes. Like there was some local stuff that I knew about, like piebalds and, and stuff. But, but when I got the California Takeover CD, that was like, holy shit. Like this is what's like, out there's there. There's nothing. Dude, and like that that record in particular, it's still to this day. Like, I mean, when I listen to that, still it gives me goosebumps because it 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 really 
articulates like what a live show sounds like. Yes. And it's so, I just, I think it's so special and how it just like cuts through and yeah. But the, I mean, it's so cool that that recording in particular has resonated with so many people where it's just like, Oh, so this is what like a crazy hardcore show sounds like. Right. Oh, got it. Got it. <laughs> and this is what, this is what Tony Brummel sounds like when he's singing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you were talking with, uh, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong. I think, is it Mike Schleibaum? Schleibaum? Oh yeah. Schle- Schleibaum. Schleibaum. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, he's in be well now, but also uh, darkest hour and, and other bands as well. But, uh, he was talking a little bit about, aging in the scene. And, and and I believe the conversation was kind of about how it used to be a young man's game, but now, you know, be well is all quote unquote old dudes in the hardcore scene. And it's cool. Like people are loving it and it's not weird to them. And, and it got me thinking, and you mentioning, or I was talking about bringing our significant others to shows got me thinking about it. Cause I fell out of hardcore for quite a few years because I just didn't have anybody to go with. And that was kind of pre-social media, pre-digital streaming. And and really, you met people at shows or you had friends that you already knew that were into it. And that's who you went to shows with. And But I do feel like things have changed in a way where you you can keep your love for that alive a lot easier because the community is easier to be a part of. You articulated it very well because I, I think that once you have these things that can kind of anchor you, whether it is going to shows, because like you said, there was... You, in order to be involved in the quote unquote scene, you had to participate in, you know, one of a few ways, like play in a band, take photos, put out records, go to shows. Like that was your only way of sort of documenting your involvement there. Not like anyone would articulate it (laughs) back then, (laughs) but now there are so many ways that people can interact with it. Like you said, of just, you know, having all of these, you know, really, really interesting social media, you know, deep dives into being like, Oh, like I can't tell you how many random Instagram uh, accounts I follow, not only in the shirt community, but then just like, here's long Island hardcore history. And I'm just like, ah, so you just see these things. And I think it's so valuable for people that can feel you know, like if they have drifted away from that scene that they can kind of dive back in and then also hopefully be able to pick up newer bands that will still give them that same feeling and be able to like push them forward. Cause it's, I, I really dislike, I remember, and I'm sure you had, um, you know, a viewing of the American hardcore documentary. Yes. And I, I remember watching it in the theater and feeling, and of course, my perspective is going to be colored because like, you know, clearly like you and I were not going to shows when, you know, that was happening right. in the early eighties because we were either not born or <laughs> infants. Yeah. I just had like that notion of like, oh, you know, this music scene died in like 1985. Like it it never died. It just goes through different evolutions and like, you know, feast and famine and, you know, fallow years. And I, I just, I, I, I really hate that thought process because it just, it, to me, that really reeks of just not paying attention. You're not active with it. And I think that because there's so many touch points now that people can have, it's so cool, however you're interacting with it, that you're just still interacting with it. And I think that's what just, you know, it, it's really meaningful to me that people can still find so much value in it as they're, as they're getting older, because it takes effort to still be involved in this stuff. And like, the effort is obviously easier than just like doing one of those four things that I was originally mentioning. Um, but the fact that you can still dip in and care about it and be attached to it is really, really cool. Um, I, I've noticed too, and maybe you've seen this 
it seems like a lot of the bands, you know, from say the mid to late nineties, and I keep referencing Boston bands cause that's, that's where I grew up. So the, that was how I got introduced to the scene, but uh, bands like Bane, they just had a documentary come out about them. And there seems to be, even though they're not together, there seems to be buzz about that band again. Caven came way out of left field all of a sudden again, Converge is riding like a big high again right now. They're the 20 year anniversary of Jane Doe. And it's interesting because I feel like so many bands seem to be having a comeback. And I guess maybe that's thanks to digital service providers like Spotify and Apple Music. People seem to be, it's almost like they're the classic rock of hardcore now. You know, like kids that are 15, you know, 16 years old are looking back 20, 25 years and going, oh man, that's some cool stuff. Just like the way that we would listen to Minor Threat. You know, when we were younger, it was like, oh man, you ever hear this old record? Like it's a, now the old records to them are the things that were current and new to us. It, no, it's very true. And I think because, especially now with like, you know, looking back at certain records where it's like using Jane Doe as an example, it's like the way, you know, the the way that recording processes have evolved to where you can make records that sound timeless. Whereas like, you know, if you, I always make fun of um, uh, Chokehold where it's like, you know, a, amazing band, like very influential to the hardcore scene. Their recordings are awful. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, you know, garbage cans being thrown down a hallway, just like, so, but people know that that band is important. So then, you know, can kind of either retroactively get into it and be like, Oh, like, you know, but just play, if I were to play chokehold against Jane Doe, you know, to any random 15 year old hardcore kid, they would be like, uh, yeah, Converge is way better. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, all the guys in chokehold would agree as well, but I think because of the, the, you know, the advent of how well these records were documented, it makes it easier for people to like, look back and understand where these bands sonically sat and they could listen to, it's like, I mean, dude, the battery records, like listening to every single one of those, um, you know, especially until the end and being like, Oh yeah, this could come out tomorrow. And like, it's fine. Like no one would bat an eye. Um, whereas like certain punk records and hardcore records, you listen to it and they sound terrible. Yeah. And of course there's a charm behind that because if it sounds terrible, but the energy is still there, that still cuts through. But then sometimes it's, it's neither capturing the energy because recording and recording studios are pretty sterile and obviously not capturing the energy of hardcore <laughs> punk exactly the best, especially with an engineer who's just like, why are the hell are these kids screaming into this microphone? Right. Give me, um, give me your money and I'll sit here and hit record. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I will, I will press record. I will put my <laughs> headphones on and not be listening to what you're doing. It's like, Oh, you're done. Okay, cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Let's do the next song. I guess if you call that, that, <laughs> But so I, I think that it does give the opportunity to, like you were saying, where people can look back, listen to a record that doesn't sound like trash and understand that it's like, oh, I see why this is relevant. I see why this is important. And so now it's like Bane is the exact same way. And all these bands now, their records are more etched in stone as being like, you can listen to them and not feel like it's just it's like, oh gosh, this is unlistenable. I know for so many people, it's a labor of love to be in a hardcore band or a punk band because, you know, most cases you don't make a ton of money. You're probably going to have to have another job. You'll have to figure something out. And some people have made a living out of it. Uh, and that's awesome when they can. Um, but I feel for people like, say, the guys in Bane because, you know, you do feel this resurgence that's happening a few years after they played their final show. And not to say that they could all make a living off of doing it now, 
but it certainly seems like there would be some money for them now that they would not have seen, say, 10 years ago. You know, and it, and it kind of breaks my heart. They're just an example, but it breaks my heart to see that because, like, these guys pour blood, sweat, and tears into that band, touring the world, recording music, and, you know, still had to go home and work the part-time job during the week before they go back out on tour on the weekend. It's just like, man, what, it, what would it have been if they could have dedicated their entire lives to just being a band? And doing that, you know, it's, I don't know. I know it's like a weird yeah. thing to look back on, but it's just, I don't know. It crosses my mind. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that there's something to be said about that kind of transient and visceral nature of existing. Like the band is at the center of the light of your life, but you are doing all these things to make decisions around the band. Like I E, you know, whatever I'm going to tour for three months and then come home and work at a bagel shop and quit and then go on tour. And like that, that existence, in my opinion, in real life is what is able to propel bands to be able to create that music that becomes, you know, timeless or important or whatever, because they are still connected to some semblance of real life, as opposed to, like, I mean, you've heard it from many bands where it's like their second or third record is about life on tour. Here's us right. in the van. And like that, like that's charming to a certain extent, but most people don't experience that. And like that, they can understand it, but it's not as meaningful where I'd be like, yeah, I understand you miss your significant other, like, cause you're <laughs> on the road and you're like, eh, okay, like I get that. But I do think that there, it, it, it makes that, and this isn't trying to romanticize that notion because like, you know, yeah, no one likes to come home from tour and be like, Oh God, I got a 6am wake up call to go to the bagel shop right. or whatever. <laughs> but I, I do think that level of being able to root yourself in real life is what's going to give you the material to write about on the next record, because you are still experiencing what real life exists. It's like, you know, whatever looking at, I mean, the same way it can be said about like mainstream rap where it's like, you know, the minute that, you know, Jay-Z is not on the streets anymore. It's like, oh yeah, that dude's talking about, you know, Bentleys and whatever. Right. It's like, it loses, it loses its impact from that perspective unless they're able to transition into something that is more universally uh, met as far as understanding where this person is coming from or talking about fame or whatever. But I do think that there is that notion of being connected to real life that does propel bands forward but on the flip side it would be really interesting to be like yo if bane wasn't having to like struggle to be like how are we how you know how, how am i like paying rent i guess going on tour again um and they had the ability to kind of just focus on their music it would be interesting to see that but i mean i guess now arguably we are seeing that to a certain extent with bands that exist now and have started with the career in their mind yeah. and then they're able to kind of, you know, exist in a, or exist on the road that was obviously paved by generations before them. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the difference. Uh, I don't know what your opinion is, but maybe when, you know, we were growing up, people were starting bands because they wanted to start bands and they wanted to play music and they wanted to just have fun and, and be creative. But a lot of people now are starting it with a career in mind, as opposed to just saying like, hey, let's go play music, dude. And now it's like, I want to play music, but I want to play music with people that I know will stick with me to make this, you know, X, Y, Z happen. I have my Instagram plan. I have my Spotify plan, whatever. Um, I, I wonder if the mindset is a little bit different now than it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, I undoubtedly. I think that that and good or bad, I think that 
even if you are starting with that general premise of like, I'm just playing with friends. Like we really have, we have a thought out process of how we want to create music and sort of our general vision of how this can go. It still doesn't like, that's not a bad thing. It's just a matter of like, if you're, you know, whatever, using the words like culture vulture, (laughs) if you're a person that's like trying to capitalize on something that is something that you clearly have not either, um, you know, kind of done the work to understand or just are figuring like this is a, you know, quick path to success, whatever that may mean. Um, that's when it's like, I mean, the same thing could be said about, you know, podcasting in general. It's like, you see people who are just like, oh, you think you're getting a paycheck from this bro? Right. (laughs) Okay. Like go, go do it for a year and then we'll see where that, that takes you. Um, and so I, I think usually the people that are, you know, less uh, genuine about the way that they're pursuing their art get weeded out sort of in, you know, automatically because they realize like, oh, there does take some work to like get this done. Um, at least that's what I'm telling myself in my own head where it's like, oh yeah, the bands that I do support, like <laughs> they are, they are pure intentions. I've tried so hard to support bands, especially during the pandemic, like buying vinyl or whatever. And, and I just eventually have to stop and say to myself, like, I also have to support myself. <laughs> I yes. have a mortgage. I have a baby. I have, you know, family. Like, I, I can't buy There's every reissue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. As as tempting as it is to just, like, click and fill out, it's like, oh, hold on. Like, I got to be responsible. Yeah. But fortunately, all the stuff we were buying is on the sliding scale, like not that expensive, you know, it's like sure. 20 to $40, roughly speaking. It's not like we're, you know, buying whatever. I mean, at least I'm not. And, you know, just looking at your, uh, your bling on you, you're not buying fancy yes, watches yes. and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> my bling, so, my, I think we're okay. My black t-shirt from target. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get for, for every record you buy, you're just like, well, it looks like I'm obviously not buying, you know, nice t-shirts or whatever. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so we were talking a little bit about Spotify and, uh, and digital service providers or DSPs as the industry calls them. Um, and you were talking to uh, Joe Joe Melheron from Nothing Nowhere. And oh, yeah, yeah. one of the things that he said is when he was trying to put music out, he was listening to stuff on Spotify and he was just trying to create something that didn't sound like everything else because he felt like there was just so much that sounded the same. And I've had this conversation with a good friend of mine who was in the band Something Corporate. And, and we were just talking about does digital streaming is awesome in ways where you can get your music out to people a lot faster and quicker and, and maybe easier in a lot of ways. But I also wonder if it kind of cheapens it somehow, not just your music, but just cheapens music in general. Has it has it kind of made music disposable where it's just like, all right, I heard a song. Give me another one. Oh, I, I undoubtedly like it, it is not uh, when the notion of paying for music obviously evaporated in, you know, whatever the early 2000s, we'll call it like once the internet obviously grew up and, you know, pirating was a thing and people sharing files and stuff like that. I I, I do think there is that um, lack of tangibility that people have with artists. And honestly, that's why you see so many artists, especially from a mainstream perspective, having to roll out these huge, huge things to, in order to soak up the attention of like, you know, whether it's like, Halsey or Olivia Rodrigo, where it's just like, we can't just put out a record and put out some banging songs. We need a film. We need music videos for 14 of our songs. Like there's so much uh, attention you need to suck up in order to get people to actually think about buying something. Yeah. And I, I do think that um, 
it's like, you know, if you were looking at it from a percentage perspective of, you know, your fan base, like if you are, or, or maybe, maybe viewing it from the, uh, the idea that there are people that exist or artists that exist that are solely selling merch where it's like, th- that is what people, that is what they want. Like yeah. we are putting out records to get you to the show that we will get paid for and that you will pi- buy merch at. Records are basically like you're, you know, if you're putting it in whatever early 2000s terms, like where Best Buy obviously started to sell records and CDs and stuff, that's the loss leader. They're like, all right, you're going to buy a cheap CD in our store, but hopefully you'll buy a refrigerator (laughs) or a washer and dryer. (laughs) So it's like records are now and streaming, you know, has just made music disposable in the hopes that you will consume more from an artist in one of these other, you know, they're still tangible, but they're clearly not like the record or, you know, the, the piece of music, the artifact that would give you the ability to listen to the music. And so it is interesting to look at it through the lens of obviously how vinyl has been able to, you know, I think over the past, whatever, five to seven years, how it's like one of, I mean, streaming has sort of plateaued from what I can tell as far as like, you know, the way that the uh you know all like nielsen and everybody does the measurements in regards to like okay streaming like we've reached kind of our max capacity i mean you know within whatever two to three percent each year but how like the only medium that has grown as far as music consumption is concerned is like the purchasing of vinyl and i think there is that need for certain people to obviously have that product beyond a t-shirt and be like well i am actually a fan of this thing or i want to obviously put it up on my wall um so i think there's always going to be that hard baked in thing regardless of age where you want a product in some capacity but it's just to your point it's definitely lessened over time to where people don't need to own the music because it's free everywhere yeah (laughs) but they need to own these other things and and also like there's just a lot of it you know and and i i don't you know begrudge bands and and people that want to use their creativity and put out music if i don't like it that's fine i'm not saying that you shouldn't put out music but there's just so much that comes out that sometimes it's really hard to sift through the noise. And I guess that's kind of what I mean by it kind of cheapens it a little bit because you might have a brilliant record. Like, I don't know, as an example, every time I die, I put out a couple singles off of a, a record that's coming out this fall and they're mind blowing. Like to me, it's the best work they've ever done. Personal opinion there. But I might have to scroll on a Spotify playlist, 50 songs down before I see they put on a new song. And, you know, there's all this other stuff there. And again, no disrespect to those artists but it's not doing the same thing for me and maybe not doing the same thing for other people. It's just a lot of noise sometimes. And it's kind of hard to get through that in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's definitely a, uh, I mean, the, the playlistification of music in general, like it's very easy for people to interact it, it, when music becomes passive as opposed to active. Yes. That's when it, and, and that's, that's where I think the, the real, difficulty in getting listeners of music to go from that passive to an active listener. Like I'm going to seek this out. I am going to make sure that I follow this artist and then follow this artist on social media and make sure that I'm going to watch that. Like that, that, that path isn't as linear as it once was, you know? And I think that that, I mean, to the way that you're putting it, it definitely cheapens that, uh, it, it, it makes that straight line, you know, just very all over the place. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no easy way to kind of trace that, that lineage. Um, and so it does make it difficult for 
people to an artist to be able to kind of cut through from that perspective. And so that's why they have to do all these other things in order to cut through. Um, but you know, I, I think, I mean, in my opinion, I think independent music is somewhat protected by that because there's always going to be that rabid fan base of people wanting to know you're a cool artist. Like, yeah. I mean, looking at like Phoebe Bridgers, where it's like, I remember what, and this isn't like a flex. Cause like I got into her, you know, at least a year and a half after her first record, you know, strange in the Alps came out, but like watching her in front of, you know, 400 people, whereas like now she's going to come through LA and sell out two nights at the Hollywood Palladium, which right. is like, you know, whatever, thousands of people. But she is because that that fan base has been developed from a sort of, you know, ground up perspective, like people are going to always want to purchase something of hers, whether it's vinyl t-shirts. And so I think that's why it makes the independent music scene a little bit more um, immune to that because people are becoming more active at a very early stage in an artist's life rather than like, oh, wow, I found out about this band, it records it like every time I die. It's like people be like, oh, where do I begin? Right. <laughs> There's nine records here. It's like, oh, well, maybe they, maybe I do begin with the newest record and then I love them. And then now I go see them and all of a sudden, like they're my new favorite band or whatever. But it, it, to your point, it's very hard to separate all of those things. I do like being able to discover things. Like you don't have to worry about flexing here because I, I will openly admit, <laughs> I just discovered Turnstile within the last year and I don't know where totally the hell fine. I've been, uh, but <laughs> that band is fantastic. And I'm just so yeah. glad. And they're from Baltimore where I live. So it's kind of exciting too, because they've done some really cool stuff uh, in this city over the last couple of years. Uh, but I'm just like, man, I, I can't believe I've been missing out on this. It's great music, but I'm, I'm glad I'm in it now. That's there's, and that that's the beautiful part about it is that there's no late to the game. Like yeah. it's, it's exciting to dive into a, a band or an artist and be kind of like, Oh wow. Like this will all be revealed to me. And I'm all going to try to like place these records in my own timeline of like, Oh, I see how they progressed over time. And like, I see why this is important relative to like their first seven inch or whatever. And so it's just, it, that that accessibility is cool but then you know then you're able to just be like okay here's my starting point and like here's where i go from here to support this artist so you've toured so you'll appreciate this story um cuz you know when you're when you're out on tour uh you're you're getting you're pitching yourself to venues or you have a manager it's pitching yourself to, pitching you guys to venues trying to find a way to get you into places um i work in the country music world right now and there's a band that i will not name but i I just can't stand them. They're just not nice guys. They're just really just not good people to be around. And their management was pitching them to a, to do a show for us. They were like, but they sell a lot of merch. And when they said it, I just looked at them. And I said, well, what does that mean for us? Like, does anybody give a damn about their music? That's what I care about. Like we're, we're a radio station trying to sell tickets for a, a benefit concert. I don't care if they sell a bunch of t-shirts. I need people right. to buy tickets to the show. <laughs> totally. It's but, like they, where, but they've where, put their yeah. focus on merch. Like they've put, and it's great. I mean, I will say this, they have really cool looking merch, but that doesn't matter to me as someone trying to book a show. Totally. It's like, yeah, if we're getting cut in on this, then like this right. is a whole thing. We can figure that out. But like, that's not like, you, you got to know your audience who you're speaking to. Right. <laughs> like, what's, your, what, what's, your, what's your elevator pitch? Oh, they sell merch. Okay. Well, that doesn't apply to us. So do you have anything else? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, Ray, I, I've taken up a lot of time uh, on your evening. Well, I guess for you, it's afternoon uh, because you're out West, uh, but I've taken up a lot of time of your day and I appreciate that. What's going on with your band before we wrap things up? Are you guys still together? Are you still doing stuff? Yeah, we still, I mean, we're as active as most bands of where we're just like, oh yeah, like 
we, I, I really like the idea of bands being, you know, full-time, part-time <laughs> where it's just yeah. like there, it always, as long as there's a reason to exist, we will continue to exist. And so like, once we came back in whatever the late, uh, the late aughts, I guess, as they say, those late yes. zeros, <laughs> you know, <laughs> once we started to like play shows then, um, and then kind of, you know, sporadically come back, like if there's a reason for us, and honestly, the main reason for us is like, we get to go to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> and like they still actively support us and it is so um exciting like we're the plan is right now as long as the the world the, i mean the world will obviously not return to normal but as long right. as like you know things are are settled down so to speak in uh february of 2022 we're supposed to go to japan with hopes fall which will be was oh, wow. a rescheduled tour that was supposed to happen you know obviously a couple times during covid um so that's what we're going to do. That's the only activity that we have next. But um, once that's kind of behind us, then because uh, I just don't want to be one of those bands that continues to like sort of exist without having any music out there. Sure. <laughs> and so the idea is that uh, we did, uh, yeah, we did an EP in 2018. So the idea is that hopefully we'll be able to kind of come together and write more music and basically put out another, put out a full length or maybe, maybe an EP. I'd like to, I'd like it to be a full length, but we'll see. But uh, yeah, we just exist as long as people knock on our door and are like, Hey, do you guys want to play this show? It's like, sure. Like We won't say no to that. I mean, we're all spread out. Well, most of us live in Southern California. Our bassist lives in Philly because he's in uh, Circus Survive. But oh, wow. um, when he's yeah, when he's able to join us, <laughs> he does. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really it, it's fun to be able to just still have people interacting with our music when it's just like, dude, we were never a big band, and the fact that like anybody cares about us, it's like, all right, cool, we're here for it, man. Thank thanks to these twenty people. It's like, we're, if you want us to play to you in you know Toronto or New York or whatever, like sure, we're there. That's fine. Well, if you make it out east and you uh, happen to find yourself in Baltimore, man, I I'd love to uh, love to hang out, meet in person uh, at some point. I think that'd be a good time, and I'd love to see your band again. So I can say I remember seeing Taken <laughs> this time. <laughs> I know. We'll 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 see if we can't solve that mystery at some point to be like, oh yeah, that's right, like that show in that place or whatever. I can't. I'm trying to think of places that we played in. Uh, I mean, we definitely played in Boston. Usually we played the Middle East once, but like negative four people were there. We played with Browning Man. <laughs> oh, um, wow. There, there was, yeah, but there's no one there. That band. Uh, for crap. us, at least. Yeah, it was like Drowning Man and Darkest Hour. And like there, yeah, we we were like five minutes on after the doors opened. It was like us just jumping on the show. So uh, we were just grateful to play. But uh, usually we play the surrounding Boston areas. Like we played with Unearth a decent amount. But uh, yeah, it, it never Boston proper. But I know we we will get to a point where it's like if i find flyers of like the greater boston area i'll be like hey what were you at this one were you at this one jeff you probably did shows in worcester i would imagine you were probably in worcester at times we actually never we never played we never played worcester never played worcester yeah <laughs> no, that's funny never okay. played there went, went to the new england metal and hardcore festival many years in a row when i worked in record labels but uh yeah never played worcester all right well, one of these days we'll solve this problem, but, uh, yes, but Ray, uh, your podcast, a hundred words or less. It's fantastic. You, you talked to so many great artists. We talked about this earlier in the conversation, but you introduced me to great new music. You reminisce with people that I've known for many, many years. I love the, uh, the nostalgia of a lot of those conversations too. So I keep up the good work, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you consuming and reaching out. And now that we are uh, friends on multiple levels, it's uh, it's even more special. So thank you for having me, sir. 
Thanks again for hanging out with me today, and big thanks to Ray Harkins for his time. If you've never heard his show, please check it out and subscribe to 100 Words or Less. It's one of my favorites out there. I have learned so much about some of my favorite bands, but also learned about new music that I had never heard before. So really cool opportunity. Again, it's 100 Words or Less. Please don't forget to subscribe to my show here as well, Adult Education, and feel free to leave a rating and review. Until next time, be well.